You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Dan, you work at Texas Women's University, right? I do. That is correct, Michael. That's great. I I do know where you work. Um, But do you feel like because you work at Texas Women's uh, University that you are covering more gender issues in education, or do you do that anyway? Um, No, working here has definitely made me think more about gender issues in education. There's no question. Um, And I think a lot of those issues get ignored um, in, in K-12 schools and at other universities. And so Texas Women's has a very interesting and unique history and the university's public. It is co-educational, but 90% of our students are uh, female. And, um, That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, it is. And um, I think that in my education classes, I always want my students to get a sense of kind of how gender has held historically has helped shape education in a lot of different ways. Um, from the fact that the profession went from primarily all male teachers to almost you know three quarters female teachers, um, the feminization of the profession uh, in the 1800s because Horace Mann and Catherine Beecher kind of held sexist views of the time and thought women could be cheap labor for schools. And so it wasn't a real profession. We have um, in my office at school. We have uh, like the rules of being a teacher, and one of them is you cannot get married. Yeah, it seemed. I mean, it's written for for women and really um, exacting. Yeah, Horace Mann. He he wrote about them in these like angelic ways that they were like these nurturing people and could replace all these drunk men who were teaching. And you oh, know, uh, the stereotypes really didn't help it to grow as a profession that was kind of respected. And I often ask my, my um, student teachers if, if the kind of disrespect that teachers often feel is just rooted in kind of the sexist history that goes all the way back to the early 1800s. But we also do some time discussing the, the fight for women's rights from the, the Declaration of Sentiments, which is one of my favorite historical documents. If, if you're not reading that and you're a U.S. history teacher with your students, then you're I doing think it wrong. you're doing it wrong. And it's a it's a fantastic document that really shows very specific things women faced at the time, um, all the way up to the so fast forwarding a little bit. Yeah, I just went off on a tangent on Alice Paul because I really dig Alice Paul. That's good. That's good. Um, I think Alice Paul. It's amazing. She's amazingly un- undercovered in U.S. history. She should be a central figure in understanding gender issues. And so, I try to discuss the three waves of feminism um, as a construct, even it's kind of flawed, but how Alice Paul participated in, in helping to gain, you know, legal rights early on. But, um, you know, just even recently there's an anniversary for the 19th Amendment, and I heard a lot of people say 19th Amendment granted women the right to vote, which is not true. It granted white women the right to vote, which is an important part of the discussion. So getting into more modern discussions of intersectionality, um, meaning that all women didn't have the same treatment. So I try to get into that kind of stuff. Does that answer your question or I just talk for way too long? 
No, no, I think it's actually very helpful. Um, do you know what else is helpful? We actually have a guest who's going to be uh, perfect for this discussion. Uh, her name is Catherine Engenbritsen. And why don't we say hello to Catherine? Catherine, how are you? Hi, I'm great. How are you? Fantastic. Thanks for asking. Catherine, can you just tell us a bit more about yourself, um, your background in education, really anything you want to you want to tell us? Yeah. Um, so I'm an assistant professor at Indiana University, and um, I'm in uh, curriculum studies. And what I do here is social studies education and multicultural education. Um, and so basically, the little kids call me the teacher teacher. And the teacher teacher. That's, I, that's like, you're like Dan. I d yes, I'm like Dan. I'm a teacher teacher, and I adore that that title. In fact, I wish I could put it on my, on my cards, but, um, yeah, so I'm a teacher teacher. I, I was, before I was that, I was a high school social studies teacher. I okay. taught in Iowa. I taught, um, in an urban school district, uh, there. Iowa City? No, I taught in Des Moines. I didn't teach in Des Moines public schools, but um, I taught in, in the county, and um, I had, um, in the course of a day, I taught government, economics, psychology, sociology, and contemporary history. That's too many preps. I had five preps. And just, I mean, to add a little gender note to this, that it was a small school, a three-member department, and... Um, I was the only female, I was the first female social studies teacher to be hired there in 30 years. Wow. And the other two men, um, one taught U.S. history and one taught world history. And they just taught U.S. and world individually. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I taught everything else as a first year teacher and that is gender laden right there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so what... What was the um, radioactive spider bite that got you to where you are now? When did you decide that you were going to go for your PhD and uh, become a teacher teacher? I don't know. Probably my mother, uh, when I was born, decided this <laughs> or something. I, um, I have always loved school. I loved, I've always been kind of insatiably curious. And um, my parents did an awesome job of um, you know, taking us to peace protests and talking to us about the news every night and talking to us about, um, you know, people's rights and how people were equal. And, and I remember being a small child and my, my father s sitting me down in front of the TV in 1989 and I was six or seven. And he said, this is a big deal. The Berlin Wall is coming down. Oh, right. Watch this. You have to see this. And I had no idea what was going on. I was so small. But it was so in the fabric of my daily life as a child growing up that um, equality was critical to the progress and development of humanity. And uh, I took a particular interest in feminism and in women's rights from an early age. And, and I remember complaining as a child that history was too much military history and political history. And I wanted right. to know what real people were doing because the real people were who mattered to me somehow. And it's always kind of been in me. So those academic interests became part of my curriculum as a teacher as much as I, as I could, I think. And yeah. then when I became, you know, when I went to graduate school and became a teacher educator, they be, 
they became much more central to my studies. And it's what I, you know, study now is gender and, and specifically how gender and gender connected to controversial issues in the classroom and how we can teach really taboo sometimes or controversial content to students directly connected to gender and gender issues. You're already kind of leading us right into the big your big idea for today, which is gender and education. And we kind of asked you to come on and take on this very broad topic that I think doesn't kind of get addressed. So what are some of the things that, that you've explored with your students or in your research about gender and education? Well, so first I want to just to define terms a little bit. When we talk about gender, we're talking about the social construction of masculinity or femininity or something outside of those two pretty rigid ends of a spectrum. When we talk about sex, we talk about biology, right? What your parts are. So when we're talking about gender, we're talking about how we present, how we look, how we act, behave, mannerisms. And, you know, human history has organized people along these lines. Not all cultures have a binary view or this man-woman dualism. Um, In fact, connected to indigenous peoples and how our country started with the genocide of an entire group of people. One of the things that happened with that, besides the founding of this nation and all of those things, was that multiple conceptions of gender were completely erased from the conception in the popular minds of the people. So um, there are cultures that have two-spirit people who have five genders or more genders. And here in, in the modern U.S., we are talking primarily with two genders. And so with, with our students and our curriculum and how things are presented, largely we end up talking about women and men. Can you tell us a little bit about what, what do you mean by two spirits as an example of, of how gender has not always been constructed in this binary way in all societies. Mm-hmm. So the two-spirit conception um, is is pretty complex, but more or less the way that the, there are a few different ways that it can be conceptualized. One being that at a certain time in, in someone's life, they might present to be more masculine or more feminine, depending on the time of life. And then there are other two-spirit individuals who maybe have the biological parts of a male, but present as a female or vice versa. And actually, two-spirit individuals in a number of cultures in the indigenous, you know, Turtle Island, the United States and North America, um, and in other cultures in the world that don't call them two-spirit, but these individuals almost have an elevated status in their societies. Whereas in the modern United States, transgender individuals right now are really fighting for their rights. And it's one of the modern equality movements that we are living through right now. So I find it interesting having students think historically and understand that today is not the same as the past and that people did not conceive of things the same. Gender is a very interesting topic because a lot of our binary ideas about gender are fairly recent, um, even to Western civilization. And the ways that men and women interacted with each other in the 1800s oftentimes were far less defined by these masculine and feminine traits, you know, um, from stories of Lincoln and, and, you know, his best friend sleeping in the same bed and it not being a big deal, um, you know, in the 1800s to other stories like that, that students have trouble understanding. So I think it's a looking at gender historically can help students see 
how much they are socialized into it. It's interesting because you also see in like the American Revolution and the Civil War, you see a lot of women dressing as men to fight. Uh, and some of them going back to dressing as women afterwards and some not. Um, but a lot of it was found out or some of them were found out when they were wounded. I know Stuff You Missed in History has done a pretty decent podcast series on, on uh, women in combat. Um, but obviously they're still hiding their, their true, true identity. Um, what are, are there other terms we need to understand to be able to think about gender? And what are some key issues in schools that, that researchers and educators um, should and are talking about? Yeah. So transgender is another really important word that we need to be talking about here. Oftentimes it's the T in LGBT, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. So oftentimes it's kind of subsumed under that umbrella. But for me, it's it's really a gender issue. It's really connected to the gender to life and expression of a, of a person or of a people. And transgender or gender queer would be another word of saying, you know, people who don't fit into these traditional pretty rigid gender definitions, trappings of like, you know, in our modern culture, if you have long hair and wear dresses, makeup, you are a female, you're presenting as a female. But we can all think of examples of men wearing eyeliner when they are uh, dressing up for Halloween or in a rock band or when they're on you know, Broadway stage or something that would go against those. But largely, we kind of know what we're talking about. Of That's a girl, that's a boy. And what it really comes down to, and this is really, really critical, is that it's all about power. So connecting to what you were saying at the beginning, with the feminization of the profession, um, a pink collar profession, that we could pay these people less, we could control them more, we could police them more. We could police their bodies. Like you said, they couldn't get married. They did. They had to give up their teaching position. We've gotten rid of some of that. But in a way, perhaps it's just become more insidious. And so the things that people are talking about in the gender world in relation to education, first of all, vast. Um, but the things that, that I really think about when talking to my pre-service teachers about gender and education connect broadly to the curriculum and how do you present it and the people who you work with every day, how do you treat them? And all of that is wrapped around power. I like how you make that distinction and how it, it, it comes out in power relationships, which can be evident in bullying in schools and in intolerance of, of differences. And these issues affect pretty much everyone. This isn't just a LGBTQ topic. Lots of uh, young men face pressures to be hyper-masculine and to not be able to, out of whatever it is that is seen as traditionally feminine, whether it's writing poetry or expressing themselves. And so they can be pushed into hyper-masculinity stereotypes that kind of limit their ability to do things in their life. And I think that all of this is about stereotypes just cause limitations. And so... I'm glad you kind of bring up how power is a part of it because it sways a lot of people into places where they can even become, you know, oppressive in their own sense to prove their own hypermasculinity, even if that's not really who they want to be. Absolutely. And in fact, the research really, you know, confirms that point that in our children's literature, textbooks, state standards, national standards, there have been a number of studies done, really good quality research that looks at how gender is presented in historical senses, in literature, in uh, the images that are used, and footnotes and things like this, right? And largely, for the last 40 years, 
it's been more or less the same. Women aren't there. Well, number one, it's a binary. We are only looking at men and women. Number two, um, women aren't there. Poof, they're gone. Although um, sometimes they're literally in the margins of the textbook. Right. Yeah. Which is literally, right. Literally in the margins, which is such a lovely nod to 50% of the population or 51% of the population. Right. And that the forms of masculinity, the forms of being male that are presented are, are rigid and they are deeply connected to a heroification and, you know, being strong and mighty and, and muscly and fighting and this really narrow vision of what it means to be a man. So this gender issue is not a, a woman's problem. It's not a trans person's issue. It's an everybody issue. And in some of the, so I also teach multicultural education. And the number of times I've heard pre-service teachers say, well, is it important to teach about black history to kids who aren't black? Yeah, absolutely it is. Yeah. Yes, of course you need to do that. But rarely do I hear, well, is it important to teach about women to men? Is it important to teach about that? Because they assume it's already there. They assume That's that interesting. They ass the diversity we see it every day, rarely are you ever going to be in a space where you don't have a diversity of gender, even if it's just two. But we have this invisibility around it. We assume that feminism won, women can get jobs now, whoop-de-doo, we're there. We've made it. Are we there yet? Yes, we're there. Okay, we've made it. We're good. And... All of the research says, mm, not only is that a false question to ask of if we're there yet, but we're, we're so clearly not there yet. And we know when we open up a textbook or when we open up a syllabus for a class and there are no women authors, or when we look at whose art we're studying in an art class, and it's only men. It kind of reminds me of the Bechdel test for movies, which is like the simplest test ever to see in a movie if basically a movie has female characters who talk about something besides men. And an incredibly high amount of movies do not pass that test. Oh the only time women show up is to speak about men. And so it's the same thing, I think, in our curriculum materials and our discussions. And, you know, if you're teaching government or something and you're not talking about how gender plays out in politics how manning up can be literally a term used without being questioned by mainstream society as politicians kind of bully each other into gender corners. I, I think you're missing important discussions that affect all of us. Catherine, can you tell us a little bit about just what advice would you give to teachers who are trying to wrestle with gender issues in their classrooms and think about how they can better address them if they wanted to get started tomorrow? Unfortunately, it's not a really clear answer. Sorry, but I can help, I think. So when we're talking about the curriculum, we know that it's woefully inadequate. So looking at things like the standards or your textbook as a springboard, right? Not a ceiling. Where else can you go from here? If we know that women are not there, we know that the people who are present in these materials that we're given largely reflect one way of being, then it's up, it's up to us to go and do the spade work, to go do the work, to be connected to current events, to historical events, to whatever your field is. If you're an art teacher or a music teacher or, you know, an elementary school teacher, we know from the research that 
children learn very young, as young as three, what a boy is supposed to be and what a girl is supposed to be. And even when you present them with counterexamples and they hold on to these really rigid binary views. So if we know that about how people construct the world around them, we can go and look for and maintain this way of constructing a curriculum that includes multiple voices. For me, it's not a question of add women and stir. That doesn't work. You can't sprinkle in a few famous women and be good. It's an entire way of looking at and constructing a curriculum. So while you're thinking about how am I adding in indigenous voices that are real? How am I adding in um, different racial and ethnic voices, immigrant voices that are real? I want you to also ask the question of what are the gendered voices here? How are they real? And how do they represent what is what has happened at this period of time or what has happened in this current event that we're studying. So it's a way of seeing and thinking about the curriculum on a much more concrete level. I'm taking out my pen right now. Yeah, I'm sorry. The podcast lends itself to like lecturing, <laughs> which is not good. Um, I, I like to take my notes. Uh, lecturing is a very masculine act. I'm going to avoid that. Okay. So here's the other thing that, that if the curriculum seems to be, too big, right? Then this is much more, I think, attainable. So we also know from the research that things like offhanded comments and jokes affect our curricular space. So if students come in and they're talking about a guy who's wearing girly jeans, you have an opportunity to break that binary down. If students come in and they're talking about, you know, well, we need to have a color for our team this year and it can't be pink because pink is a girl color. You have an opportunity to break that down. You have a conscious choice when you're doing trips to the bathroom to not separate into boys and girls lines. You have a conscious choice to not separate into boys and girls teams when you're having competitions in your classroom. All of those reinforce a gender binary and elements of our culture that are remarkably rigid and ultimately damaging to our psyche. And they're pretty simple for teachers to do. You can just say, let's choose a different way. Let's choose a different word. And it's elementary, it's secondary. It's possible for you to be a gender ally in seemingly really small ways, but that don't have to do with revamping your curriculum. They don't have to do with reading an entire set of histories, which Not I told you shouldn't, which is great. Totally do that. Right. It's also really simply, you know, listening to a female colleague sitting next to you when she says no to a request, respect the no, don't ask her again. It's about saying in a small group PLC, going to your principal with this great new idea and giving credit where credit is due, not not taking a, a woman or a trans teacher's voice as your own. And it's those things that create allies. It's those things that change our spaces more than did we learn about Eleanor Roosevelt. Right. I think it's, yeah, it's the enacted daily experiences we have so often that, that make a difference because there's just so many things we do that are just, again, learned and we don't question. And um, when I've opened spaces for discussions, and sometimes they're not always, the discussions weren't always centered around gender to begin with, and and when I would ask students about cliques in school, it's amazing how 
your guy students would open up and talk about the stereotypes about what the way they're supposed to act as athletes, or your girls would would open up about the some of the pressures that they felt um, being uh, females in the school or being in a, a gendered kind of area like cheerleading or something like that. And they just come out and kids realize it. Like they're so good at talking about this stuff if you create a comfortable space for them. And they just, you can almost see the relief come off when they're saying some of this stuff sometimes. Yeah, they're brilliant. We have so much to learn from them. So much to learn from them. Well, I think we learned so much from you today, Catherine. So thank you so much for coming on and just helping us think a little bit about gender and education and get the conversation going a little bit. I hope so. It was fun. So where can people find your work online? Do you have social media spaces or websites or other places where they can find some of the stuff you've done? Well, I have my faculty page. People are always welcome to email me. We can put my email in the show notes if you are into that. And one of the articles that's really accessible for teachers because it's on a free platform is um, a social studies research and practice article that I wrote about gender and the social studies standards. And you can find that through the Social Studies Research and Practice website or my website on my faculty page at Indiana, or we can link it to the show notes too. Perfect. Again, thank you so much. And we hope to continue the discussion online and in other spaces, anywhere they may be. Absolutely. Let's break down those binaries and talk about it while we're doing it. We're all about sharing and learning at the Visions of Education podcast. Tweet us at Visions of Ed if you're doing something creative in education. And if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Education on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast signing off.